0: Some call this process an impeachment inquiry, some call it an impeachment investigation. There is no legal difference between these terms, and I no longer care to argue about nomenclature, but what we are doing is carrying out an investigation to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment against the president.
1: From Pacifica Radio, this is The broadcast, As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI in Red Bluff, Redding. KKRN, Round Mountain. KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast. KSO in Cottage Grove. And KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI. And Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you got me, Nicole Sandler, of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, filling in for Brad. Uh, Brad had a bit of a family emergency, so um, we'll, we'll be playing it by ear, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We've got a busy show planned for you today. We've got a new edition of the Green News Report. Thank you, Brad and Desi. We have a conversation with Crystal Ball who is a very outspoken progressive, thankfully, on the air these days at hill.tv. And a conversation coming up in just a moment with a young man who has been inspired by the mass protests in Puerto Rico and Hong Kong and other places around the world and is wondering why we can't do it here. But we'll start with a couple of important news stories you need to know about. On Thursday, the House Judiciary Committee voted 24 to 17 along party lines to formalize the hearing rules for their impeachment inquiry. This gives Jerry Nadler some latitude in designating certain hearings, I guess as impeachment hearings, allowing staff to ask questions and giving Donald Trump an opportunity to formally respond. Nadler spoke to the press after the vote.
0: This morning, the Judiciary Committee adopted amended procedures to enable us to more effectively carry on the investigation that we're involved with. This investigation will allow us to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment with respect to President Trump. Some call this process an impeachment inquiry. Some call it an impeachment investigation. There is no legal difference between these terms, and I no longer care to argue about nomenclature what we are doing is carrying on an an investigation as to whether to recommend uh, to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment against the president with these new procedures we will begin next week an aggressive series of hearings uh, investigating allegations of corruption obstruction and abuse of power against the president the investigation will go well beyond the four corners of the Mueller report And we will be starting with with our first hearing on September 17th. We expect, among others, Mr. Lewandowski to testify.
1: That clears that up or not. The other big story that I want to make sure we get to today comes out of North Carolina, where the House Republicans used a 9-11 memorial ceremony as a ruse to get Democrats out of the chamber so they could override the governor's budget veto, which, among other things, killed Medicaid expansion. It's as sickening an assault on democracy as I've ever seen. North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper explains what happened.
2: Today, on the 18th anniversary of 9-11, while the state was honoring first responders... Republicans called a deceptive surprise override of my budget veto. Unfortunately, it's the people of North Carolina who lose. On a day when tragedy united our country, we should be standing together despite party. But instead, Republicans pulled their most deceptive stunt yet. When you have to use bribes and lies, whether to override a veto or to draw your own legislative districts, You are beyond desperate. We still have an opportunity to sustain this vote in the Senate. And I implore Democratic senators to remain steadfast.
1: North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper speaking about the unbelievable maneuvers pulled by the House Republicans there on Wednesday. It is just sickening. On Thursday... Protests sprung out at the North Carolina State House, which brings me to my first guest today. One of my favorite columnists, who I read regularly, <laughs> is Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the other day, I read a column that he wrote called September Days Inside the Movement to Bring Hong Kong Style Protests to America. And through Will Bunch, I learned of a young man named Joshua Potash, who's a a New York City College English instructor who, Will tells us, quit his more time-consuming job at a Bronx charter school last spring to focus on his current obsession, which happens to be massive street protests aimed at forcing Trump from office. Um, Joshua, I was thrilled to read about you from Will Bunch. Mm -hmm. And I'm really impressed with what you're doing because we need this kind of a a mobilization here in America. So um, tell me what got you started on this and where you are in the process.
3: Well, first of all, thanks, Nicole. Yeah, uh, it was an honor to be written about by Will and really happy to talk to you. And, well, there's two things that got me started. I guess one was seeing this incredible movement taking place in Hong Kong Um, and some of the similar uh, movements recently around the world, especially uh, in Puerto Rico this past summer. Um, And the other really inspirational thing is uh, the Never Again Action, otherwise known as Jews Against Ice.
4: Right. Um,
3: They're inspiring not only because they're in the United States, but because they come out again and again and again. You know, they hit uh, ice facilities in D.C. and Milwaukee and L.A. and, Um, And I grew up Jewish. So seeing them uh, come out in such an organized fashion, a systematic fashion, you know, not just a a flare up and then disappearing, but seeing them come out again and again was really inspiring to me. And I I got linked up with some of those folks. And um, that's part of what got this ball rolling.
1: Yeah, awesome. You, now, you wrote a piece. It's up on Medium.com. I will link to it mm-hmm. um, uh, from my blog at NicoleSandler.com and, and also at Bradblog.com. Um, uh, but it, it, basically in it, you, you wrote a, a piece called The End of One and Done Protests. So the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, obviously, uh, we had a huge, massive uh, mm-hmm. global protest with uh, more than a million people turning out. But as you, uh-huh. as you describe it, it was a one and done. And uh, mm-hmm. the next day, it was sort of business as usual, and here we are. What you're arguing for is what they were doing in Puerto Rico, what they are doing in Hong Kong. In Puerto Rico, they forced mm-hmm. out a corrupt yeah. governor. In Hong Kong, exactly. they successfully got this extradition bill pulled. Um, but uh-huh. it took concerted, regular, ongoing mass protests, and that's something Mm -hmm. that that we don't have here. Now, this is a much bigger—the United States is a much bigger country than Puerto Rico is an island, and Hong Kong as well. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we do something like that on such a massive scale?
3: Well, I think we are an extremely spread-out country, you know, geographically and population-wise, but I think there's uh, a fact that I keep coming back to again and again, which is that perhaps the most liberal part of the country, or one of the most liberal parts of the country, is New York City and the New York area— and our metro, I'm based in New York City, and our metropolitan area has 20 million people. Um, so we do have the density, we, we do have the numbers to make it happen here. And then in the DC or the DC Baltimore metropolitan area has approximately 10 million people as well. Um, so we do have the numbers there as well. And in terms of making it happen, I mean, that's part of what the people I'm working with are trying to do. Um, we're setting up a technological infrastructure uh, chats um, that have currently a couple hundred people but obviously we're growing every day and continuing um, to work on that and what we're doing is just getting people and getting organizations connected because there are an incredible number of fantastic organizations um, some of whom are interested in uh, direct action and sustained protests and some of whom currently that isn't their mission but They, of course, oppose Donald Trump and the GOP, especially in its current incarnation. So we think that we have the numbers in these areas. We have uh, the people who have the belief that impeachment needs to happen now. Um, And it's mostly a matter of getting people connected, getting people on the same page and getting to a point where. When the call goes out, uh, 100 organizations are sending it out at the same time, and it's not. Uh, kind of scattered calls that we've seen recently here. It's more a group of people acting in concert, um, much like in Hong Kong, where this latest incredible uh, round of, I mean, round and multiple rounds of sustained protests um, were orchestrated by over 50 organizations acting together.
1: Right, and, and that's the only way I can see it happen. Now, there is mm-hmm. there are a few protests planned for this month. Oh, on, se- yeah. on September 20th, obviously, there's the, the global mm-hmm. climate strike led by 16-year-old mm-hmm. Swedish uh, Greta Thunberg, who's in America, to address mm-hmm. the UN. Um, and so on that day, I guess, uh, students and teachers, hopefully, will walk out of mm-hmm. schools across the nation. That's a Friday. The next day, uh, September 21st to Saturday, is the We the People march organized Mm -hmm. by, uh, as Will Bunch describes it in the column we mentioned, uh, some well-known Trump resistance activists such as Amy Siskind and Dr. Karen McRae. So that's happening Mm -hmm. on the 21st. And then there's another one happening on September 23rd by a group called by the people, not to be confused with we the people, um, but but also pla- they are planning a large DC rally to call for impeachment. Are you working with these groups as well to try to you know steamroll into a bigger movement?
3: Yeah, I've had the privilege of talking with several of the the people at By the People <laughs> um, and several of the We the People march organizers <laughs> as well and climate activists. Mm-hmm. Um, One beautiful thing that's happening is that on the 23rd, simultaneously with the By the People event, there's a larger um, climate action led by Extinction Rebellion happening in D.C. and other cities as well. Um, So I think what you're referencing is kind of this uh, groundswell Mm -hmm. um, that's coming up right now. And it's to us, um, the people of SOS and others that I've spoken to, it's kind of the start of a more sustained series of actions. Um, And I was really appreciate what you said about teachers and students um, protesting and striking on the 20th because Greta was recently at the UN, UN actually, and several of us went out and, you know, we're just striking out conversations and, one of the women I was talking to said, oh, yeah, I mean, if the kids are skipping school today then we ought to skip work today and that's what she did. So I, I think we're seeing a slight shift. Um, obviously, not everybody will be able to take off work. You know, that's that's a given. But um, Saturday actions Then in Hong Kong, you see nightly actions as right. well after work, thousands going out into the streets.
1: That's right. You know, here's the problem that I see. Uh, I live in South Florida and I'm in a suburb, Mm -hmm. sort of a bedroom community of Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. But to get Mm -hmm. to Fort Lauderdale from where I live, it's a 30 minute schlep. Uh, And, you know, when they have uh, any kind of protests in Broward County, and it's very apathetic here, sadly, horribly apathetic. Mm. It's the bluest county in Florida. Um, When they do have a protest, it's at the federal courthouse the federal building Mm -hmm. in Fort Lauderdale at five Mm o'clock on a weekday. Um, It is not convenient. Uh, I wish there were a way to call a time each day or each night when people just go out to the closest major intersection and sit down or something like that, Mm -hmm. Mm right? And one of the problems has been nobody organizing this movement. And I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, Joshua Potash, that's where you come in.
3: (laughs) Um, I... Well, first of all, it's very important for me to say that I'm I'm one of many. Many, um, gotcha. I just happen to have a bunch of Twitter followers. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> um, But no, the, you know, we have in terms of the other national organizers, there's incredible people in Boston, Seattle, Chicago. Um, we do have some people in Florida, and definitely big presence in San Francisco and L.A. And I think D.C. does need to be shut down, and it will be mm-hmm. um, in about you know in the ten days as you mentioned. Um, it does need to happen in New York, but I couldn't agree more that in this massive spread-out country where we still do have, you know, large urban areas like South Florida and Chicago and California and Texas, um, there needs to be actions happening there as well. And some people have proposed um, general strikes or uh, shopping strikes mm. or actions that can be taken by anybody, um, really by without lifting a finger. I mean, in terms of a strike, <laughs> it's... <laughs> you know, really about doing nothing, um, you know, not going to work, not shopping, not participating. And I think there's a lot of people around the country strategizing for how we can be heard and be effective and hit profit margins if necessary uh, without all of us convening at one location, like you mentioned.
1: Right. Now, um, so, so now is your, you've started an organization is SOS America 2019, uh, the, the umbrella group for your efforts?
3: So we're trying to be an unconventional group in one of two ways. One, I'm, I'm not the founder. I'm, okay. I'm just one of the organizers, but, and that's part of what we're trying to do is there's no one leader. There's no one person in charge. We have a number of national organizers. We have city organizers, and that is the umbrella movement. That is the call. Um, but we're looking less to be a conventional leaders where everybody joins our organization and snap filled out the paperwork And more an organization that works to put other organizations in contact with each other and to eventually get everybody sitting around the table um, acting in concert
1: cool well if people obviously i'm going to share the link to your article on medium and and will mm-hmm. bunch's uh, op-ed um, but is there uh, how and your your twitter handle obviously people can follow you on twitter at joshua potash p o t a s h mm-hmm. any other way they can get involved and they can uh, start working with yeah, you on simplest this
3: yeah the way is just that the name you mentioned sosamerica2019.com um if you if people get in the loop, there they'll start getting emails that tell them about actions we're targeting. Uh, tell them about these chats that we're engaging in, where people can get uh, linked up with us, and and really with more and more people in their area. We have uh, chats or conversations occurring in about twenty five cities right now, and and continually growing, adding new people. So, yeah, that website's another great place.
1: Awesome. I will direct people there. SOSAmerica2019.com uh, Pretty soon yes, you're going to have to change it to 2020.com, but that's okay. We'll deal with that when we get Don't to worry. it. Don't worry, we thought of that. <laughs> uh, Joshua Podach, thank you for stepping up and doing this. I, I, it's it's so important, and hopefully uh, enough people will sign on and we can start making um, some, some impact here mm-hmm. by taking to the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah,
3: yeah. Thank you for what you're doing, and quick shout out to everybody in North Carolina protesting that extraordinarily corrupt GOP government down there.
1: Yeah, very quickly. Let's talk about that, because you mentioned on Twitter today, Joshua, that um, after what the travesty that happened in North Carolina yesterday where the House Republicans basically tricked the Democrats into going to a 9-11 memorial... Um, and, while, and promising them that no votes would be taken while they were attending. They did just that, and they used their, the, the Democrats' absence at that memorial to, uh, veto, to override the governor's veto of the budget, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. helps deny North Carolina of Medicaid expansion, among other things. Uh, it's reprehensible. This is not what democracy mm-hmm. looks like. But today, uh, just as you said, a, a protest just sprung up there, yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, there, If you look at most mass protests, there's often an organic nature to mm-hmm. some of what happens. Uh, there's the telegram chats, uh, Ricky in um, Puerto Rico. There's the extradition bill in Hong Kong and events like what the North Carolina GOP did uh, just yesterday. I mean, that uh, uh, as a New Yorker, it's just I can't even explain how. <laughs> I, I'm sure I don't need to to most no. Americans, no, to most it. people, how vile that is. Um, and then clearly, you see the people in North Carolina responded immediately. I mean, they outside the state house in the in the outside the General Assembly in the state house, there people just just went over there. And it might not be the straw that breaks the camel's that is going to break the camel's back, but it's one of the straws. I mean, the GOP just is unrelenting in their uh, march towards fascism and yes. <laughs> uh, away from democracy. That's um, exactly it. So uh, people are responding. It's just we need to get organized to respond collectively as, as one force, Um to halt them because they will not stop unless they're halted
1: nope and and you even point out on twitter today that in sudan there's a mass protest you have video Mm -hmm. to have a fair Mm -hmm. judiciary if they can do it in sudan we can do it in the united states
3: exactly there's really bold people i mean sudan algeria protesting against the military regime i mean i think we've seen around the world that there's uh, there is a rising response. Um, unfortunately, it's because um, of encroachment of fascism. And I mean, even in England, you know, the UK has stopped the coup movement. Uh, it's a beautiful movement, but it's, it's tragic that it was necessary to begin with.
1: <laughs> no kidding. Um,
3: but there is a rising wave to stop this uh, tide of fascism, to combat this faux populism of the, the right wing. So. Um,
1: all right, now we yeah, just need some...
3: just got to be
4: done, so now
1: thank we... you. My, my thank you. Now we just need some good protest music to accompany it. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Joshua yeah. Potash will work on that yeah. one. You can follow Joshua Potash on Twitter, at Joshua Potash, P-O-T-A-S-H, and be sure to visit SOSAmerica2019.com to stay up to speed on wherever they have one of these protests planned. Up next, we'll look into the future with Crystal Ball. Sorry, that was too easy. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad Friedman on the broadcast. <laughs>
4: And thanks. Telling like it is. Don't be ashamed. Let your
5: be your
1: You found the broadcast Today you've got me, Nicole Sandler, of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi as they're off dealing with a family emergency. We'll hold the fort down until they can get back. There's a problem with the corporate media. It's something that I rant about all the time on my show at NicoleSandler.com. In terms of cable news, we're limited, right? We've got MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. To be honest, none of them are straight news channels. They all have an opinion. They all have an agenda. The agenda is that of their parent corporations. With Fox, of course, you know what you're going to get. With MSNBC, well, they're owned by Comcast. So it should be no surprise that MSNBC seems to be in the pocket of Joe Biden. In fact, the evening of the day Joe Biden officially announced his candidacy, he went to a big-money fundraiser held by, you guessed it, Comcast. As for CNN, I think they just serve the almighty dollar, the almighty sponsorship dollar. Who knows? So I'm always striving for the independent voices who are not controlled by any corporate entity and are not told what they can or cannot say. I had the opportunity to speak with Crystal Ball, who these days is hosting a a fairly new show for The Hill. It's at hill.tv. And one of the first things that surprised me about it was how much freedom she appears to have to say what she's actually thinking. What a concept. I'm here. Thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to meet you, and I really appreciate you joining us today.
6: Oh, uh, it's my pleasure. I've been following you for a while, so oh. the, the pleasure is certainly
1: mine. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, we, we know you. Many of us first learned about Crystal Ball when you ran for Congress in 2010, and after that, we saw you as a, on TV as a political commentator. Uh, then over on MSNBC, you were one of the co-hosts of The Cycle. And last year, you joined The Hill to co-host a new morning show called Rising. I got to say, I was I wasn't surprised to hear you got a new gig because I think you're you're a natural and you're really good on TV. Um, but I was I was kind of surprised that you were going to the Hill, and even more surprised that you seem to have control over what you say. That you seem to be allowed to to actually speak your mind. Uh, and the Hill I always thought of as a kind of a conservative outlet. Uh, so I'm even more surprised that they let you do this. Was that part of the deal you struck with them? Well, I mean, look, they knew what they were getting
6: when they hired (laughs) me, right? I mean, you don't, you know, I mean, I I have not been shy about my views. I've written a book about my views. I've been fairly unspoken. So so I knew when they reached out to me and they wanted me um, that, you know, they must have been interested in what I had to say. I think because, just being totally candid with you, I think that we are given a little more leeway than maybe we would be otherwise because my co-host is on the right. I'm on the left, so we do have a lot of different perspectives, but what is a little bit, what is really a lot different is both of us represent a sort of anti-establishment view, mine from the left and his from the right. And so there's a lot of topics where we actually agree, Uh right? We agree on a certain level of media critique. We agree on a certain perspective of the way that the working class has been systematically screwed in this country. And so the dynamic is just, it's just a lot different than I think what's going anywhere else. And it's a conversation that I am every day excited to have. It actually gives me hope for where the country could go, Post Trump potentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, you know I'm just I'm grateful to get to do it. And yes, as you know, they have they have not censored me yet. No,
1: so we'll see how long that lasts. It, it, it's awesome, and and I, I appreciate them giving you free reign to speak your mind because that's what we need. Um, I'm not going to focus on MSNBC, but I do want to ask the question because uh, we've heard reports from others who've exited there, most notably Chank Uger and Ed Schultz, that they were reprimanded for for example covering Bernie Sanders, especially in a positive light. Did you ever get pushback on, 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 on covering Bernie?
6: You know, I was uh, sort of on my way out by the time Bernie's rise really came about, but I did have some similar examples. You know, one thing that got a lot of attention when I was at MSNBC is I did a monologue before Hillary got in the race saying, you know, I've admired your career. I admire your intellect, but please don't run because, you are exactly the wrong candidate for the moment. You are too closely tied to sort of elite interests in this country and Wall Street, et cetera. At this moment, when there's such concern about income inequality, this is going to be a disaster. You're going to essentially freeze the field. Very few other people are going to get in. You're going to be the nominee and we're going to lose. I mean, uh-huh. I laid that all out, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I was allowed to say it. But afterwards, I uh, was called into, you know, my, my boss's office and I was told that you know, it was great. They liked what I said, but uh, there had been some pushback from Clinton World, and so from then on out, everything that I said, every commentary that I did about Hillary Clinton, needed to be run through the oh. president of the network. Oh my which, god! Which, as you as you know, is you know wildly outside of the <laughs> normal protocol. Uh-huh. And um, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm sure that I'm impacted how I covered the race, what I said, how often I was critical of her, because you just know there's that added level of scrutiny. It kind of, you know, that's just one example. But I think it's a common dynamic in um, political journalism where MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, all these places rely on access to the Democratic and Republican establishment. Sure. So there's a little bit of a limit of how far they want to go if that access may ultimately be threatened. And that was that was their concern there.
1: Right now. Now, I've noticed one of the things that made me say, oh, God, I got to get her on the show was um, uh, one of the commentaries. They're called On My Radar, the segment. Do you open the show with that each morning? So it was about the, the media blackballing. And, and kind of, you know, dissing of Bernie Sanders. Let me just play a clip of that. This is, it's it's a, about a minute-long clip. But this is a great example of something that you and I are away on the same page on uh, th- that, well, the listeners will, will recognize what you're saying because I've been ranting like this for weeks now.
7: CNN <laughs> recently displayed a curious graphic. Looked ordinary enough, listing of top candidates in a new national poll, but with a rather glaring omission. So rather than listing the sixth-place candidate, Andrew Yang, who was polling at 3%, they skipped right over him and instead included Beta O'Rourke, who was garnering 1% in that poll. Now, this may have been chalked up to a simple error if it weren't part of a persistent pattern of ignoring Yang's candidacy. One of Mr. Yang's supporters, Scott Santens, has been keeping track of all these slights on Twitter. An MSNBC graphic with other candidates polling at 2%, but Yang left off. Oddly unbalanced graphics that seem to include just enough candidates to get the media favorites in but exclude Mr. Yang. And as Axios recently pointed out, Andrew is sixth in the polling average, yet he's 14th in terms of the number of articles written about his candidacy. Clearly, there's something going on here. But what I've noticed is that Yang is not alone in facing media contempt. Without fail, every candidate who has come from outside the Democratic establishment or who has dared to question the Democratic establishment has been smeared or they've been dismissed or they've been completely ignored by the media.
1: And it's so true. And it's infuriating. It's, it's one of my biggest uh, problems with the, our entire electoral process here in the United States is, first of all, there's no just objective cable news network. All of them have a, a spin. And, and, you know, you look at MSNBC, which is owned by Comcast, and immediately after Joe Biden announced, he went off to a fundraiser put on by Comcast. How can anybody trust them to be objective when it comes to covering this campaign. Well, and that's the thing
6: that drives me the most crazy is, like, I am not an unbiased journalist, right? Mm -hmm. I am very much biased in favor of a sort of, you know, view of political change that is inclined towards more radical, more revolutionary. I also have a bias in favor of the multiracial working class and believe that that coalition coming together to pressure for change is the only way that major reform ever happens in this country, right? That is my Bias. Mm-hmm. I wear that up front. And everybody knows I'm coming from that perspective. Right. What drives me nuts is when you have journalists, like, you know, as an example, the fact checkers over at the Washington Post who clearly have Ugh. an ideological agenda yes. towards this sort of moderate center-right, center-left perspective, but they pretend to be neutral. You know, we're just calling balls and strikes here. And that to me is what really does a disservice. Like, look, you're allowed to have a view, an opinion, a frame for which you view the world. We all do, but don't pretend like that bias isn't impacting your work. I also think the thing that I've talked about is there's a tremendous um, class blind spot in the way that the media covers candidates. So the darlings of this cycle have at different times been Beto O'Rourke, um, Mayor Pete, Yeah. Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. and I would say right now Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, one. Yep. they all have something in common, which is all of them have been held in very high regard at one point or another by sort of affluent white liberals. Right. That is primarily whose taste and interests the media reflects, because that's who the media typically is. That's who they're typically surrounded with. So it's natural human sort of inclination to draw from your own experience in your own life. But I think there's very little awareness of how that makes you... Miss the rise of Trump, as one example. Miss the incredible grassroots support that a Bernie Sanders has because his supporters are Walmart workers and teachers uh-huh. that you maybe aren't interacting with in your, your regular life. So anyone who threatens the establishment, you know, I, I in that piece you, you played, I talked about Andrew Yang, yeah. Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson, Bernie Sanders, all very different, but in yes. their own ways owe nothing to the establishment, and therefore are a threat to the establishment. And all of them have been subjected to either being igno- ignored, smeared, or otherwise dismissed.
1: Yeah. And, and it's just, it's so blatant that I, I got to tell, you know, Joy Reid, she and I go way back where I live in South Florida. So I've known her for years before she you oh, know, what, right. went to MSNBC. And so, you know, I was pitched on her book, And we've had friction, you know, over the years. We're we're, we're never quite friends. We knew each other. We ran in some similar circles. Uh, But I had her on the show, and we got into it over, you know, my contention that the DNC worked against Bernie Sanders. They totally... Mm -hmm. Sabotaged him. They did not want him and did everything possible to keep him from getting the nomination. And I believe if they had stayed out of the primary, as I believe parties should, um, that I, I, I think Bernie Sanders not only could have beaten Hillary Clinton, but I, I firmly believe he would have beaten Donald Trump. But they put their finger on the scale, they put their whole bodies on the scale. And she just would not give. <laughs> She wound up hanging <laughs> up on me because I got heated. So, um, but what? you know that kind of ignoring of what we all saw with our own two eyes is what gets me. How how they can defend yeah. what the DNC did in the twenty sixteen elections is beyond me. And now, you know, you ran a piece, I believe, showing that that. Uh, chart that they put up, I think on CNN, actually, I think both CNN and MSNBC ran some form of it where they're already counting the delegates that each of these so-called lead candidates have? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense,
6: (laughs) that whole process right? and how you could be counting delegates at this point. I mean, there's just no real basis for it. And I think certainly, you know, Joy and I are are friends as well. I know her. I like her. She's a good person. This isn't about like a personal attack on anyone. It's a systemic problem. And certainly some people are uh, worse offenders than others, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. But it's more of a, a, when you see this happening at outlet after outlet, um, you know that it's not a problem with one person. It's a problem with an entire structure and system and the incentives that are involved. And you also can't ignore the way that the profit Motive plays into all of this, right? Like right. The people who are subscribing, paying for subscriptions to the Postman and the Times are the people who, you know, are going to support a, a Pete Buttigieg or a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren. And so those tastes again are reflected in, in that way. Um, so, you know, I will say, and this is going back to, to you asking sort of like, how are you allowed to say the things <laughs> that you say in, right? in a corporate owned media? You know, I think there is some forward thinking going on at the Hill where they see um, our show is growing very quickly. I say that with with a lot of pride and excitement, um, but also humility, because I think there's just such an appetite for something different than cable news, a perspective that is reflective of the rising election, and that's both the right and the left, and so us trying to that conversation and just, you know, be honest about the trends we see unfolding from a more populist perspective um, has been really well received. And so I think our, you know, the people who run the Hill are excited to see those numbers and excited to see the reception that we've
1: gotten online. I, I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. Crystal Ball is with us. She is the co-host of The Hills TV show, Rising. You can get it at hill.tv. Now, what time do, what time do you do this? Do you start? It, is it like a traditional 6 a.m. morning show? Yeah, kind of. Um, Yes and
6: no. So it's posted in two places. It's posted on Hill.TV, like you just said, and that's a great place to catch it. And also on our YouTube channel, the Hills YouTube channel, um, which is a a wonderful place to sort of engage, and there's a very good experience on YouTube as well. So we start uh, taping it at roughly 8 a.m. Oh, nice. And we'll be doing content between, let's say, 8 and 9.45, something like that. And then it'll start posting on the website at uh, 8, 30 and it starts, it posts on YouTube at 10.30. So it's live to tape, but we call it live ish because everything is basically <laughs> as is and we just post it on gotcha. live at so, different times.
1: So no one, yeah. you can't just tune in on a Roku or something and see the live show. You post it as sort of a podcast and it, and it but yeah. it's recorded live to tape. Something like like, that. like Colbert. I mean, it's,
6: broken, it's broken into segments <laughs> uh-huh. um, and uh, playlists on YouTube. And then the whole show you can stream at one time on Hill.tv.
1: Very cool. All right. So, so there are alternatives. I got to say, you know, I, I'm sort of a creature of habit and old school and old, plain old. Um, and so I wake up and I turn on the news in the morning. And, and you know, lately I, I flip back and forth between... MSNBC and CNN and I got this morning I just couldn't take it anymore and I'm done uh with the the morning joke people because it's it it, it's too much um I'm sick and tired of being told that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren can't win that the only way to victory is Joe Biden because I'm actually of the mind that Joe Biden cannot win if he's the nominee I think we wind up with four more years of Donald Trump and I think that will destroy us all um But I think what's going on, you mentioned, Crystal, that, you know, now it seems like Elizabeth Warren is the media darling. I think this is all by design. I think they are trying to stir up trouble within the progressive community. I think they want to pit the Bernie Sanders people against the Warren people and have them eat our own and get them out of the running and clear the way for Joe Biden. And it scares me because I see people falling for it. Well, that's been the game from day one. I mm-hmm. mean,
6: from the moment that they were on a debate stage together, they were trying to to poke at him to get them to yep. you know attack one another, and, and neither one of them taking the bait. And the reality is that if you look at their coalitions, um, they are have very different coalitions. And this is a very people in in the media tend to have this very simplistic view of of how voters actually select who they are going to support and they think, okay, everybody's going to plot everybody on an ideological spectrum. And if you're liberal, here's your candidates. If you're conservative, here's your candidates. That's actually not at all how actual voters choose their candidates by and large. If you look at the Biden coalition and the Sanders coalition, two candidates who could not be further apart Mm -hmm. in terms of democratic politics on the ideological spectrum, they have a lot more overlap at this point than the Warren and the Sanders right? coalition. Which is so surprising. There's a lot of different dynamics going on here than um, than the media always picks up on. But yeah, I think you're right. They want to see those two battle it out. Um, they want to see that fight. You know, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's certainly no love. For, for Bernie among the media. So they want to see Warren go after him. And they just they love the drama of a fight. You know, of that's course. the bottom line. It's great for
1: ratings. That, that's it. It's all about ratings. And at the debates, it was so apparent uh, when they were on the stage together, they kept trying to get them to go after each other. And I don't think either one of them are having that. I know Bernie Sanders put out a directive imploring his supporters to be civil to not go on the attack. And what I tell people when I see them attacking Elizabeth Warren in in my feed is stop it. Number one, ask the questions. It was brought to my attention that all of a sudden, Elizabeth Warren's um, position on Medicare for All is absent from her website. And I went looking and sure enough, there's not a mention of Medicare for All. There's not a mention of health care, which leads me to believe that she's working on a plan, Another white paper, basically, with her plan. And who knows, maybe she'll uh, ro- announce it at the debate. But uh, what I don't like seeing is Bernie, people who are self-described Bernie Sanders supporters going after her, calling her name, saying she's a phony, saying that, you know, she's uh, Hillary Clinton 2.0. So I have a problem with that. But, you know, then there is fodder. You did a commentary the other day, I think it was about a New York Times story, that said that Elizabeth Warren was powwowing with Hillary Clinton and doing outreach to the DNC. And it's disturbing, knowing what I know and feeling how I feel about the Democratic Party. It bothers me. But let me ask you to look at it this way. She's playing politics. Obviously, Bernie Sanders will never be able to work with the DNC. It's a two-way street. They're not going to work together. It's, you <laughs> attract more <laughs> flies with honey than vinegar, as the old adage says. Doesn't it make sense for Elizabeth Warren to try to, try to work with them rather than be adversarial with them uh, without necessarily yeah, th- going over to the dark side?
6: I, th- I think as a purely strategic matter, you're, you are absolutely correct. Um, And yet it does concern me because, Mm -hmm. as we know from watching, you know, from watching politics for a lot of years, who gets you into power is going to matter a lot once you're in power. And so for me, I look at all these things. I look at, you know, the donor approach. I look at who you're associating with, who you're courting, who you're getting support from, all as whose phone calls are you going to answer when you're in the White House? Right. Right. Because best intentions or not, best plans or not. People are influenced by who they surround themselves with, who they're hearing from, who has influence over mm-hmm. them. And so, you know, one of the things I said, we should have there should have been a lot more red flags about how enamored Wall Street was with Obama when he was <laughs> coming up.
1: Right. Without a doubt. George W. Bush. Yep. yep.
6: What's that? Without that. a doubt. Right. Yes. And so they get their they get their bailout and nobody goes to prison. Right. And yep. George W. Bush. Very much tied with oil interests. Obviously, yep. mm-hmm. they get Iraq yep. right. Yeah, um, Bill Clinton. Very much, you know, supported by corporate interests, and they get NAFTA and deregulation and all sorts of goodies in the Clinton administration. And really, actually, you know, that's when the Democratic Party becomes sort of corporatized under that um, under that administration. So, I just think that it's very important to watch how people are going about their campaigns, who they're associating with, who they're relying on for power, because. It does matter in an ultimate administration. I agree with you completely about, you know, these like sort of nasty attacks. And I think Elizabeth Warren is vastly superior to like almost every other candidate in the race. Right, It's a high class problem to have. Uh If we are looking at Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren, that's a wonderful problem to have. But I do think there are differences. Of course. And I think it's worth talking about those differences. And, you know, one of the things I've been sort of sussing out, Is like we were just discussing before how different their coalitions are and why that would be. What is it in in Sanders' approach that's appealing to the working class? What is it in Warren's approach that's appealing to this, you know, sort of highly educated, affluent white base? Those things can shift over time, but I think it's a really fascinating dynamic.
1: Absolutely, I, I do too, and and yeah, and I like both of them. And my whole line of reasoning is: look, we have two really good candidates. I'm I, I'm I'm I don't consider myself a journalist. I'm a talk show host, but I, my show is based on fact. I'm very. Uh, cognizant of the fact that I don't want to give out bad information. I want everything to be accurate and if I screw something up, I want to be corrected. But I have definite opinions and, and that's what I do. I voice my opinions. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. I was in 2016. I am now. I still think he would be number one, the best candidate to go against Trump, but number two, the best president to affect real change in the way that we need it, especially to reverse all the damage that Donald Trump has done to us over the last few years. That said, I, st- I really like Elizabeth Warren. I wanted her to run in 2016 as well. I think she's great. And if we can't have Bernie Sanders, and frankly, I, I-, I believe the DNC will do everything in their power to make sure he doesn't get the nomination— Our next best bet is Elizabeth Warren. And after the two of them, frankly, I'm reaching. Um, You seem to like Andrew Yang a little bit. I like him, too. He's been on the show. I think he's smart. I just don't know that he's, you know, qualified to be president I think, Andrew,
6: um, what I find exciting about Andrew and, um, and and find really exciting about his whole movement, which is, you know, his supporters are probably the most enthusiastic of any candidate. I mean, you even mentioned him and they're sharing it like crazy. They're super excited. Uh-huh. They're just, they're all about it. And And what I like about Andrew is that he is really expanding the Overton window. I think his critique of our, sorry, <laughs> with work, um, our obsession with work and like the cult of work and that work is the only thing that can give us meaning. I think he's right about um, his critique there. So I love that he's on the debate stage. I love that he's making mm-hmm. his case. I love his sense of humor, his, his like levity and his intellect and his yep. just like fact-based reasoning that he brings to it. So, I really enjoy him. Do I think he's going to be the next president? I mean, look, Lord knows anything can happen now. Look, who's in the White House right now, yeah, but I know. Um, so far he hasn't been been able to expand his appeal behind uh, beyond a you know a very solid base, although uh, recent polls have shown him ticking up a few points. He's now I just saw one from New Hampshire where he's tied with Pete Buttigieg in New Hampshire. It's pretty pretty okay. funny. Um, mm-hmm. but uh but I love that he's there. I love that he's expanding the Overton window. And I love that he is put let's have a debate about UBI and what mm-hmm. the future of work looks like at the center of our national politics. I think he's done a vital service there.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm the victim. You know, my, my background, I've been in radio for 40 years this year. And um, wow. Yeah. And so uh, 1979 in college is when I got in. I told you I'm old. Um, but I was, you know, uh, I've been technologied out of a job, the entire radio industry. I played music on the radio in L.A. for many years. And uh, before I got politics. Um, And while I was working at a station there, the the Clear Channel, who owned us at the time, bought this company called Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but we know what they were looking for, because it allowed one disc jockey sitting in a studio in any city to open up a computer screen, get the music log of Station in City X... And voice track and hit a button and have all those tracks go to that city. So if you're listening in New York mm-hmm. City, you're hearing somebody who's sitting in L.A. Uh, who recorded their air shift, you know, in an hour this morning, playing at 5 o'clock this afternoon. That's happening everywhere. Um, there mm-hmm. aren't live disc jockeys on the air anymore. It just doesn't exist. And what 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 used to be one job for one person is now, you know, uh, one person doing about 10 jobs. So the entire industry that I've been in since college is destroyed. Obviously, I'm trying to do my own thing here, but uh, this is what Andrew talks about. We're all going to be replaced by robots and he's at least looking at that. I think he should have A cabinet position in a Sanders or Warren administration as I don't know Secretary of Workplace Innovation or something.
6: Uh, Yeah, I I, I'd love it. I mean, he could be Secretary of Labor. I'd be down for that. But I mean, there's innovation. I mean, something because he is so forward-looking and I think willing to think outside of the box. Um, I've I've actually known Andrew. I met him when I was at the cycle at MSNBC Mm. when he was doing Venture for America, and we kind of kept in touch since then. So he. He came and talked to me when he was thinking about running for president, and I was very encouraging because of exactly what I just said. I mean, let's, let's put these debates out there. Let's start talking about the future, and if you don't have an answer for what this country or what this world looks like when there are many, many fewer jobs, how we're going to cope with that, um, then I, you know, I don't think you're serious. I don't think we should be taking any candidates serious who haven't thought about that and have some kind of solution.
1: Totally, totally agree. Uh, We're getting close to the end. Are are you going to endorse anyone, have you, or will you, or are you going to keep that to yourself?
6: No, I don't think I'm going to endorse anyone. But you know, look, like I said, I I like Bernie Sanders a lot in terms of the top contenders. He's certainly my favorite. I think mm-hmm. he's got the right theory of change, and and I like his fu attitude towards everyone personally. <laughs> I do too. Um, but look, I I really admire Elizabeth Warren. Like you, I begged her to run in 2016. Mm-hmm. That was part of that Hillary monologue that got me in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> <It> was, right. <laughs> I don't Warren instead. Yeah. Um. And you know, beyond that, I like you, I think of the major candidates that drops off a bit. I think I think Tulsi has a very important voice in terms of, you know, anti imperialism. I think she's been very unfairly treated by the media and everyone else, but I think she has real courage. I think Yang is great for expanding the, the Overton window. There are other, you know, great aspects of different candidates, but kind of
1: like you. Yep. I like Bernie. Yep. I, like, I like Warren, too. There you go. We're kindred spirits. Crystal Ball, what a pleasure to meet her and talk with her. Sadly, Crystal finds herself in the news today as she's being smeared, slut-shamed, actually, by Rush Limbaugh. Now, that's nothing new for Rush Limbaugh as he's done this before. But seriously, that guy's still on the air? I don't get it. All right, I am Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com filling in today for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen. They had a sudden family illness that they're dealing with, so we'll hold down the fort until they return. But they did leave us with a new green news report, and we've got that for you next. Don't go away. It's Nicole Sandler, your guest host for today's broadcast. <laughs>
5: making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks.
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, filling in today for Brad and Desi. They're off dealing with a family emergency, but thankfully they left us a brand new addition of the green news Report, You need to know that your stand is our stand.
4: Global trade unions commit to walk out for global climate strike. Parts of the planet have already warmed two degrees Celsius, The benefits of investing in climate adaptation far outweigh the costs, report finds. plus...
2: The demonization of carbon dioxide is just like the
5: demonization
2: of the poor Jews under Hitler.
4: Prominent climate science denier departs the Trump White House.
5: Good riddance. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And
4: I'm Desi Doyen.
5: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment because you don't believe in climate
2: change um at all uh, you made a comment just back- a minute just a minute just a you, minute you i a believe in climate you, change no, shut up
5: it's so sad to see another stable genius leave the white house this is your green news report I'm soak up the sun. okay desi doyan scientists say we must keep the planet from rising Two degrees Celsius, but now we're learning that parts of the planet are already doing so.
4: Yes, unfortunately, a new data analysis by the Washington Post shows that parts of the planet have already crossed that two degrees Celsius threshold of warming. That's the limit above pre-industrial temperatures that world governments agreed to not go beyond in the United Nations Paris Climate Accord. The new analysis finds that accelerating man-made global warming is adding new hot zones including parts of the U.S. and much of Europe. In total, about a tenth of the planet's land regions have already warmed two degrees Celsius. The analysis also found that global warming is changing the global circulation of winds, which is in turn altering key ocean currents, shifting them to new locations, and that is changing precipitation patterns that are key to agriculture. Meanwhile, the tallest peak in Sweden has lost its title thanks to climate change. Two hotter-than-average summers have eroded the glacier cap on Mount Kebna located above the Arctic Circle. Which mountain? Kebna Oh. Scientists say that over the last 50 years, the height of Kebna Kaisa's tallest peak has dropped by nearly 79 feet. Accelerating glacier melt around the world has serious implications for regions that are reliant on glaciers for drinking water and hydroelectric power. However, the benefits of investing in climate adaptation far outweigh the costs. According to a major new report from the Netherlands-based Global Commission on Adaptation, investing in adaptation measures such as early warning systems and resilient infrastructure would generate a massive return. And simultaneously with reducing emissions, they say such investment would help avoid climate apartheid, in which wealthy individuals can afford to protect themselves while the rest of the world suffers.
5: Sounds familiar.
4: The report calculates that investing less than $2 $2 trillion globally on adaptation projects would return more than $7 trillion in total net economic benefits. They conclude it's much cheaper to adapt now than to pay the much higher cost of damages later. Some good news, senior Trump White House advisor and prominent climate science denier, Dr. William Happer, is leaving the administration after failing to convince them to launch an adversarial review of climate science to undermine the National Climate Assessment.
5: Couldn't Happer to a nicer guy.
4: Doctor Happer, who is not a climate scientist, famously likened attacks on fossil fuels to the demonization of Jews under Hitler. But like CO two in the atmosphere, Happer's climate denial will remain in the White House long after he is gone. Finally, the global climate strike is set for Friday, September 20th in conjunction with the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York. Youth climate strikers are staging marches and demonstrations in more than 150 countries to demand their governments act on global warming. The Swedish teen climate activist who inspired the climate strike, Greta Thunberg, is in the U.S. after crossing the Atlantic on a zero emissions solar powered racing boat. She will speak to U.N. leaders and join a climate strike. Outside the Trump White House on CBS this morning, she explained why.
7: I want to do what is right. I want to make sure that I have done everything in my power to to stop this crisis from happening, to prevent it, and that I promised myself that I. I will do everything I can, and that is what I'm trying to do.
4: And workers around the world say they will walk out of work to join the strike on September 20th, including employees of Amazon, Microsoft, and other tech companies in the United States. This week, the head of the International Trade Union Confederation, Sharon Burrow, announced their members will also join the global climate strikes around the world where laws allow. For
1: unions, we've said for a very long time there are no jobs on a dead planet.
5: No jobs on a dead planet. Well said. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And
4: I'm Desi Doyon. And
5: this has been your Green News Report.
4: Who's going to stand up
5: and
0: save the Earth? Who's going to say that she's had enough? Who's going to take
1: on the big machine? This all starts with you and me. And that brings us to the end of another Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi today. I will be back again on the next edition, in which we'll recap the third of the Democratic presidential primary debates will be joined by the wonderful Heather digby Parton. Until then, good luck, world.